Father in heaven, now as we come to your word, I pray that you would enable us to see it, not only to see it, but to listen, not only to listen, but, but to believe, Father. I pray that this word sinks deep within us and we take it to heart, really, for it's your truth. And as we take it to heart, that we'll know real life. This, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 15. I'm going to read this again. I say again, I've been reading it for a couple of weeks, but again, 15 through the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. When they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did for every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, One of the reasons that we take the scripture up the way that we do on Sunday morning, that is either in books or blocks of passages, is so that we can listen to it speak. That is, that it, the scripture itself, as we read through it, sets the theme. Generally, I don't come with a theme and say, this is what we're going to do this Sunday. This is this is what we're going to think about. And we uh, dig into the scripture to find what the scripture says about that particular theme or topic. I just simply don't do it that way. It's okay to do it that way. I just simply simply don't. We do it that way other times on Wednesday nights sometimes or in Bible studies or our life groups or Sunday school classes or whatever. We take a topic, we take a theme, and we say, what's the Bible say about this? Good thing to do on Sundays generally. I don't do it that way mostly because I, I don't want to be the one who sets those things for us. I would rather take big blocks of scripture and read through it and say, okay, what's this about? And if it's about that theme or topic, then, then we ought to take it up whether I want to or not. And so we just kind of do that. Now, this time, at least 
as we've come to the Gospel of John. I kind of did it a little differently, though not exactly. That is, I came with this idea that I wanted us to think about the Holy Spirit. And I knew, I've read the Bible, I knew that Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit a good bit on that night uh, that he was betrayed the eve of his crucifixion and that that's in John's chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, really, primarily 14, 16, bit in 15. But, 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 so I, I had that in mind, but, but rather than just take up the verses about the Holy Spirit, I said, no, 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 let, let's take up the whole block of it. Now, we, we looked at what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. It was very helpful to us. We, we learned the foundational truth that the primary purpose or task, if we could put it that bluntly, of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. That is, when we're thinking rightly about Jesus, when we're believing in Jesus, when we're loving Jesus, when we're exemplifying Jesus in our life, it means that the Holy Spirit's at work because he's come to make, really, Jesus known to us. Jesus referred, remember, to the Holy Spirit as another helper, Jesus being the other helper, so that when the Holy Spirit comes and he speaks, he's going to sound just like Jesus. When he acts, he's going to act just like Jesus would act. And, and so the Holy Spirit comes to take the work of Christ, to take what Christ has accomplished and make it real, if you will, in the lives of those for whom Christ died, those who would believe. He, he makes it real. The Holy Spirit makes all this real in our lives. He gives us new life, new birth, if you will, so that we can believe, so that we can receive that which Christ accomplished for us. That's the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit, of course, works in us. The, the renewing grace, that grace that conforms us to the image of Christ. So we see the fruits of the Spirit, really the fruits of Christ, the image of Christ in us. And he equips us for ministry by way of gifts. He empowers us to be witnesses, to be witnesses not of the Holy Spirit, but to be witnesses of Christ. That's what he loves. That's what he does. And so we learned all of that and some other things as well. But, but, but in, in, in working through this, we, we found a number of other things as well. A number of other themes, topics caught our attention, like the place that Jesus was preparing for his disciples that he prepares for us, like the presence of Christ still with us, though ascended. He is still present with us. The, the, the prayers that he would hear, that he would answer, the peace that he would achieve for us, between us and the Father, between us and one another, all of that. So, so we picked up on that. And then we realized, after having going through all that, that none of this would make any sense without his resurrection. That that was the uh, uh, key pin in all of this, that, that if he didn't rise from the dead, then, then, then none of this would be true. All of it would be, would be meaningless. None of it would be helpful. So... 
we began to look at these resurrection appearances of Jesus. We, we talked about Jesus uh, with this couple on the road to Emmaus. We talked about Jesus making the appearance on, the, on that Easter evening uh, to all of those who were behind the locked doors in that upper room. And then the next week with, with Thomas as well. Remember, Thomas wasn't, hadn't been there on that previous Easter evening. The next Sunday evening, as we might put it, uh, Jesus comes to Thomas so Thomas can see and believe. But you remember... Jesus said something interesting, something fascinating. When he talked to Peter, he said, Peter, I mean, Thomas, do you, do you believe because you can see? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. See, that's the way it would be for most, almost all followers of Jesus would be those who would believe without seeing Jesus because he was going to ascend. And so the only way really that anyone would come to believe is by way of a work of the Holy Spirit, whom we can't see either, through the eyewitness testimony of these who did see, who had seen the risen Jesus. And, and so that's how we've come to faith, is by way of the testimony of those eyewitnesses coming to us by way of the convincing of the Holy Spirit, right? That's, that's it for us. And, and so the question then that we ask is, well, how are we going to live without seeing Jesus? Well, this chapter 21 in John gives us a picture of that. Because the disciples, some of them found themselves fishing, they were fishing, on the Sea of Galilee, just like they had some years before when they first met Jesus. But now Jesus wasn't with them. At least they didn't know that. They couldn't see that he was with them. He was on the shore, not in the boat. They didn't know he was on the shore. In the same sense that he's with us now, we, we can't see him. Right? They couldn't see, really, that Jesus was with them, even though he was. But you know the effects of it. They weren't catching fish. And then this person on the shore, whom they didn't know, said, cast your nets on the other side. They did. They got more fish than they could ever imagine. Yes, isn't that it? That he's with us, enabling us, even though we can't see him. He's sovereign over the catch, even though we can't see him. And that's the way it is now. We're fishers of men, if you will, but we can't see him. But he's still Lord over all of that. He's still enabling. He's still bringing in more than we could ever imagine. And not only that, he would be our shepherd. But how would he be our shepherd when he's not here? Well, he would commission shepherds and so he commissions Peter as, 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 as the first, really, as he lays him out as the prototypical shepherd amongst fellow, as Peter would put it, shepherds, fellow elders. Peter never saw himself as the one who would be the vicar of Christ or never saw himself as, as the chief shepherd. Jesus was the chief shepherd. Now, Peter announced himself, you might remember from last week in First Peter chapter 5, as one among others, just one among others. And there he was. And so he would be shepherd and others would shepherd as well. Watch over, if you will, the flock of God. On Jesus' behalf, while he is ascended. What's fascinating about this commissioning of Peter was that it was really a restoration of Peter. You remember Peter had denied Jesus. Well, Jesus was on trial three different occasions with increasing conviction. Peter, Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And you had to wonder, uh, after the resurrection of Jesus 
how that was going to actually be addressed. I mean, I mean, Jesus had made great promises to Peter. He called him the rock, you know. He was going to be the foundation, if you will, this confession he made. And he would be the very foundation, this rock upon which the church would be built, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, and he gave Peter the keys of the kingdom. And, and you wonder, how is Peter going to use those keys? When is that going to happen? Is that going to happen now that, that Peter's actually denied Jesus? I mean, what's all that going to mean? And this moment in time, and Jesus graciously, kindly, comes to Peter, not once, not twice, but three times, to match his denials. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. This wonderful forgiveness, this wonderful restoration. And in the midst of that, you see, he says, all right, Peter, just because you denied me doesn't mean you've lost all of this. You're restored now. Now be the shepherd to my sheep, tend to my sheep, feed them. You go out. And and again, a great gift to Peter to be restored like that. So now that the elephant's out of the room, now that they've made contact, now that, oh, okay, this is how it's going to be. What a great gift to the other disciples. Because now they knew that when Peter stood up and spoke on behalf of Jesus, he had the authority of Jesus to do that. What was in their minds was no longer the denial, but the restoration, the calling. And so Peter then could stand and and be free to speak on behalf of Christ, knowing that he had been restored. He wouldn't have to sort of have his hands behind his back with his fingers crossed. He he could really just be standing there and, and speaking the truth of Christ with confidence and with power and the very authority the very authority of jesus and even in the midst of this you see peter had been made fit to be a good shepherd as well and the reason that he had been made fit is because he had been deeply humbled his weakness his sin had been exposed and Jesus said, you love me more than these others love me. Peter, uh, on that night when, when, when I was going to be betrayed, you said that you would follow me even to the death. I said that you'd deny me. And you said, no, even if they deny you, I never will. Even if all of those other disciples deny you, I never will. And, and, and Jesus said, really, Peter? And Peter got it. He was a sinner saved only by grace. And in that humility then, you see, he could really tend to the sheep because he wouldn't lord his authority over them because he knew his own heart. Two other things, though, come from this passage which speak to us about what it means to be followers of Jesus. And it comes as Jesus lays out to Peter essentially how he's going to die. Two things are these. One is, when we follow Jesus, it's not only in this humility and not forgiven and restored, not only all of that, but but we follow him without condition. And we follow him without comparisons. Without conditions. Without comparisons. Notice, after all of this, Jesus says to him, after he restores him, you know, you've got to get a sense. And there's, some, there's a real sense, I think, by the end of verse 17, after Jesus says for the third time, feed my sheep, you've got to get a sense of, of sort of humble triumph for Peter. I mean, it's like I've been restored. Great. 
Wow, now I can get on with the work. And, 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 and knowing Peter's personality, I would suspect, if I were Peter, I'd be ready to run off and say, bye, Jesus, I'm off. This is great, you know. Uh, maybe I'll see you again, maybe I won't, but, but I've got work to do, you know. And he doesn't. But then Jesus, I think, takes a bit of the wind out of him. And so he says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by which kind of death he was going to glorify God. In other words, he said, this is how you're going to glorify me. Peter, you're actually going to die because of all this. And you're actually going to be crucified. You're going to stretch out your hands. You're going to give up at the end of your life. You're going to give up your independence. Someone else is going to dress you. You're going to give up control of your life. They're going to take you where you don't want to go. And you're going to die on a cross. That's how it's going to end. Have you ever wanted to know what your future is going to be? You ever thought, you know, if I just knew, you know, how it was going to end or what it was going to be like in 10 years or 15 years or any of that, most of us have lived a while know that we've tried to think that through. We've tried to plan for the next 10 years. And, of course, it never sort of turns out the way we expected it. Uh, the planning is good, probably, I suppose, but, but it never really. I mean, I can't even imagine today. I couldn't have imagined it 10 years ago what it's really like. But Peter would know. We'd know exactly how it was going to end. He would have that shadowing him for the next 30 plus, perhaps, years, knowing a day would come. Would today be the day when he would be arrested, when he would be considered a criminal, when he would be taken, when he would be imprisoned, when he would be crucified? No wonder Peter had as his understanding of suffering, this as he wrote to a suffering, as he wrote to a suffering church, First Peter chapter 4, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is being, is, 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 is revealed. You know, Peter said, this is, I've been thinking about this a long time. This is how we must understand the difficulties, even the persecutions that we face. And then he would write later to Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I'll make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. You see, Peter used this information about how he's going to die to, to sort of influence, inform, program his, his ministry. He says, all right, I don't know how much time, I don't know when it's going to be, so I need to make sure that I have them ready to live on even after I am gone after. I leave them uh, as their their shepherd, Peter would know that 
following Jesus would require everything of him. Even his life. In one sense, that shouldn't have been a surprise. He had been with Jesus if he had thought back through that which Jesus had taught him. He may have thought of this from Matthew chapter 10. Matthew remembered it. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Not everyone has a literal cross in their future, but we all have a cross in our lives because we're putting to death that which keeps us from following Jesus. Luke would write it, Luke, in chapter 9. Luke would have it This way, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory the glory of the Father and the holy angels, you see. Jesus spoke honestly about what it meant really to follow him. You leave everything else behind him. You come and follow. You come and follow me. Verse 57 of Luke 9. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head to another, he said. Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord. Let me first say farewell to those of my home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back. And who looks back is fit for the kingdom God, you see, Jesus wasn't against burying our parents or saying goodbye to those we loved, but he knew that these were conditions, really, that these had put on their following of Jesus. I'll follow you when. I'll follow you if. These various conditions, you see. There are no conditions when we follow Jesus. He says, come and follow me. Whatever you leave behind, whatever keeps you from following me, leave behind and come and follow me. Rosario Butterfield is a name that some know. She wrote a book entitled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She was a professor of English at Syracuse University when she was converted. And, and in her talk, she put a question, and the question was this. What have you sacrificed for the kingdom of Christ? In other words, what have you left behind? What have you sacrificed in following Jesus? And she's a person, a woman who 
who understands that question because when she was converted, she left behind, really, all that she had loved and cherished, all that was really life to her, all that she had come to build her life upon. She was a lesbian. She had a lover she loved, a community that she had a sense enriched her. But then she met an old, kind pastor of a church who he and his wife befriended her. She voraciously read the Bible. She attended the church and worshipped with a loving congregation. And after a period of time, she realized Jesus had saved her. And understanding that he had saved her, she knew what that meant. That she would leave behind all that she had built her life upon. She would leave behind all that gave her a sense of being human, being real, being important, being necessary. All that gave her previously life because she knew that it didn't. She knew that now it was Christ who gave her life. She could have said, Jesus, I'll follow you if I could stay in this relationship. Jesus, I'll follow you if I could stay in this community. Jesus, I'll follow you if if I could satisfy these passions this way. But you see, when we follow Jesus, there are no conditions. Peter would know no conditions. Peter, you can't even want to dress yourself. You can't even want to go where you want to go. You can't even save your life. And following me. Impossible. Paul would obviously know this himself. He writes of it poignantly in the letter to the church in Philippi. He says of himself, we are the circumcision, that is, of Israel, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, but no confidence in the flesh. He said, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. My Lord, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He was saying there are no conditions, really. What are our conditions? Sometimes we don't know our conditions until something happens. We didn't know the condition was, Jesus, I'll follow you as long as this one I love lives. And then the one you love dies. And then what happens to your faith? Was that a condition? I'll follow you. I'll follow you, Lord. And so long as I find someone to marry. But if you don't, was that a condition? I'll, I'll follow you, Lord, as long as I'm successful. As long as this business works out. As long as my health sustains. As long as my spouse remains with me and loves me. As long as I have children. As long as my children believe. As long as... 
I have all those conditions, you see. And one by one, they're exposed and we're tested. And Jesus says to us, kindly, but no conditions. I'm sovereign. Here's the way you'll glorify me. Now follow me. Me. No one else. Me. And then, then, then John sort of is, 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 in the, is in the crowd. Peter and John, I often wonder about their relationship. You know, they were fishing partners. Uh, before uh, following Jesus, they, they knew John the Baptist together. They, they were together in a, in a great number of things. And you wonder sometimes if they didn't have a little bit of uh, sibling spiritual rivalry uh, going on. You know, they were in the inner circle. Peter, James, and John always with Jesus closer. They were there when, when Jairus' daughter was... was uh, was healed, and Jesus had thrown everybody else out of the room, but, 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 but him and these who had come with him, Peter, James, and John, they were there at that great scene of the transfiguration, right? They were there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John. They were known to be the inner circle of Jesus, but, but, with Jesus. But, but you wonder sometimes. Uh, Peter paid John no mind when he said, you know, these all may fall away, but, but not me. And John was in that group. <laughs> but Peter denied Jesus, and John was by the cross with Mary. You wonder, is that ever mentioned? There was a time when James and John went to Jesus and said, could we f- sit on your right and on your left? They didn't say, oh yeah, could we make a place for Peter too? You wonder, when there was a dispute arose among the disciples who led that dispute, wonder if it was Peter going, wait a minute, guys, I thought we were a threesome, you know, the amigos. But, uh. And then the way John writes, coming to the empty tomb of Jesus is always fascinating, you see. Women tell John and Peter, begin to run to the tomb. John gets there first, he's a little younger. He looks in, but doesn't go in. Peter runs to the tomb, he gets there late, goes in. John tells us, and then John adds this. So the disciple whom Jesus loved went in, the other disciple, and believed. Hmm. Just a bit there of, and believed. You just wonder about this. So, so John's there, and he comes up, and, and, and Peter says, you know, what about him? You wonder what he meant by that. Could he have meant, well, if I'm going to die, does that mean we're all going to die? Or it could have meant, I don't mind dying if he dies too. This envy thing, it almost killed Asaph, the psalmist of 73 that we read a while ago. It almost killed him. He said, my foot almost slipped. You see, envy is that thing which the Proverbs tell us are in our bones. It destroys the contentedness of life and causes bitterness and self-pity and all of that. It destroys us really from the inside out, this envy. We look at others, and, and, and that's certainly true for us, isn't it? And we have a tendency to envy, us, envy those, oftentimes those closest to us. You know, the little leaguer doesn't envy the professional ball player. He envies the kid who's a year older and plays all the innings, right? That's the kid he envies. The student doesn't envy the professor. The student envies the other students who seem to make better grades with less effort. That's the student that the other students 
envy, right? We envy our, our peers, those who seem to have a better life than we do, more than we do at any one moment in time. And we think, what's the deal there? Why did they get that? They're just like me. Why did they have that and I have this? Envy, you see, causes a discontentedness. It causes a bitterness. It leads us into a kind of a life of self-pity, doesn't it? It destroys from the inside out what happens now we have an antidote for that a number of them one is that we say you know you just don't know everybody and that's simply true everybody we know this in our heads but it's really true everybody has trouble it's just simply true and if they don't have trouble now it just means they've left trouble and will enter it later you know if you don't have any trouble at the moment it means that it's been and it's coming but it's just a reprieve at the moment everybody has trouble the way the apostle put it in first corinthians is, is there's no trial or temptation but such as is common to human beings everybody has trouble the truth of the matter is and this is really true and and, and I, I know it's true because it's true in the scripture i know it's true because in my business i know a lot of stuff right you tell me a lot of stuff and we live through a lot of stuff we all have trouble when you look at the person beside you and you think their life's great it's only because there's stuff you don't know and it's okay that you don't know it we don't have to list it all out you don't have to come with it all written on your sleeve and blah 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 people say well you know people in church their all lives are perfect that's a bunch of hooey whatever who he is right it's just not true we don't in fact we wouldn't be here if we had our lives together coming here we're saying the best we can do on our own is hell that's that's what we've all admitted as christians the best i can do on my own is stand before god and be condemned so our lives aren't all together we're saved by grace and grace alone. So we could say that, but that's not what Jesus says to Peter here. That the way Jesus puts it, it sounds kind of harsh. Notice, notice how, 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 how Jesus puts it when he, when, he, when he speaks to Peter. He says, Peter says, what about him? What about John? And Jesus said, if it's my will that he'll remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. In other words, he's saying, yes, Peter, you're going to die by crucifixion. He may never die at all till I come back. He may be alive when I return. Ouch. Jesus could have said, you know, he's going to be a prisoner. He's going to be on the island of Patmos. And he's going to receive the greatest revelation that anyone has ever received of glory. You know, write it down, but don't worry, no one will ever understand it. <laughs> but he didn't. He didn't tell him anything about John. Why? Because Jesus, you're not following him. I've got something for him. I've got something for this one. I've got something for that one. I've got something. Each of you is going to glorify me in a way that I've determined. I will direct it. I will lead it. It's going to happen. I've ordained it. And, and, and so you, Peter, are supposed to follow me. You see, envy kills Oscar Wilde, playwright, poet, novelist of some note, 19th century. 
is reported to have told this story. The devil was crossing the Libyan desert when he met, met a number of people tormenting a holy hermit. They tried to involve the hermit in various sins of the flesh, tempting him in every way they knew but to no avail. The sainted man shook off all their suggestions. The devil whispered to his workers, What you do is too crude. Give me a chance to show you how. So the devil told the holy man, Your brother has been made bishop of Alexandria. And a scowl of malignant jealousy crept across the face of the hermit. That, said the devil to his crew, is the sort of thing I recommend. Envy happens. Envy kills. The devil could have said to Peter, you know that's John. He always gets it right. That's John. He's the beloved disciple. You know what's going to happen. He's going to be known as the apostle of love. He's going to be the great pastor that everyone looks to after you're gone. He's going to receive a great revelation of glory. That was true, you know. Jesus said to Peter, follow me. This hymn song we sung eats my lunch every time we sing it. Whate'er my God ordains is right. I will be still whate'er he does. Follow where he guideth. He's my God. Though dark my road he holds me, that I shall not fall. But wherefore to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. He'll never deceive me. He, he leads me by the proper path. For Peter, that would be crucifixion, death. For John, it would be something else. I know he won't leave me. I, I take content what he has sent. My hand can turn my griefs away. His hand can turn my griefs away. Patiently, I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right, though, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, but I take it all unshrinking. My God is true. Each morning new sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart. I know a day is coming when comfort will come. Pain and sorrow will depart. Whatever my God ordains is right here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I'm not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. So to him I leave it all. You see. Jesus says, follow me. First and foremost, this is the only reason you can follow me is because I've forgiven you, I've restored you, and I've called you. So now in that humility, trustingly follow me. Now really follow me. Don't, 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 don't have any conditions that you bring to the table. And as you come, 
to the table. Don't make any comparisons of your life with the lives of others. I'm calling you, Jesus says, to follow me. I'm the one who is your life. I'm the one who is enough. I'm the one who can and will satisfy. I've ordained the steps of your life. You can trust me. No conditions. No comparisons. Set your eyes upon me. Can we trust him, he said, to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. This is my body, which is given for you. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. I love you. The same way he took the cup. Taking the cup, he gave this also to his disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often, the apostle says, as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. When we declare it, we're saying, yes, that's right, he did die. Don't forget this. For us. It isn't that he just died. Everybody dies. It's not that heroic. He died for us, meaning his death took our place. He took the cup of wrath, emptied it so that we can live. Now he says, come to me. No conditions, no comparisons. Trust me. With your life, with the death, turn your back on everything that you once built your life upon. Everything that once gave you life, receive life now from me and me alone. Come. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us, that you would set this bread and juice aside in such a way that we know that we're in the very presence of this one who did indeed live, die, rise, ascend for us. Died for us that our sins would be forgiven, risen for us that we too may live, ascend, that he may rule and reign over everything that he has done so that it would be fulfilled in us. So I pray, God, that we would come to this table with no conditions, no envy of the life of another, but trusting only in Jesus. And this I pray in Jesus' name.